Dr. P started to look around for his hat. He reached out his hand and took hold of his wife's head, tried to lift it off and put it on. He had apparently mistaken his wife for his hat. We're going to be exploring left hemisphere modes of attending to the world. Hi, I'm Michael C. Patterson, and you are listening to the Mind Over Muddle series from MindRamp. How can we manage our minds to minimize conflict and confusion? The thesis that drives the Mind Over Matter podcast is that we can unmuddle our minds, we can minimize the conflict and confusion we often feel, by figuring out how to balance the influence of the two forms of consciousness that drive our behavior. So part of this figuring out process is going to involve getting to understand the unique strengths and weaknesses of our right hemisphere and of our left hemispheres. Not the pop culture cliches, but a real evidence-based understanding that has emerged in the last half century since the first split-brain research was conducted by Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga. As we did with the right hemisphere in an earlier podcast, we will try to get a sense of what life is like when experienced exclusively through the left hemisphere. We can do this by examining instances of people who have suffered damage to their right hemispheres. People with right hemisphere dysfunction are forced to live under conditions of left hemisphere dominance. Their right hemisphere isn't working properly, so the left hemisphere picks up the slack but they are still operating on half of their brain power. And perhaps not surprisingly, people with right hemisphere dysfunction, that is left hemisphere dominance, are prone to suffering strange distortions of reality, along the lines of those described by Oliver Sacks in his book The Man Who Mistook His Wife for His Hat. To get a better sense of what the muddle of right hemisphere dysfunction and left hemisphere dominance is like, Let's get to know a bit more about the, the man who mistook his wife for his hat. Oliver Sacks describes his patient, Dr. P, as having been a musician of distinction, a well-known singer and a respected teacher at a local school of music. It was at this school of music, however, that Dr. P started to behave strangely. He would fail to recognize a well-known student until the student spoke and Dr. P recognized their voice. In addition to failing to recognize faces, Dr. P began to see faces where there were none. With seeming kindness, Dr. P patted the heads of fire hydrants and parking meters. Well, after three years of this quirky behavior, Dr. P was referred to a neurologist, to Oliver Sachs. Sachs asked his new patient what was the matter, and Dr. P responded that um, nothing was wrong that he was aware of, but that people thought there was something wrong with his eyes. He didn't think there was anything wrong, but he did admit to occasionally making mistakes. So as part of the neurological exam, Sachs asked Dr. P to remove his left shoe so that he could scratch his sole, the sole of his foot, to test his reflexes. When done, Sachs left the room for a minute and upon his return noted that Dr. P. had not put his shoe back on. Can I help? he asked. Help what? Help whom? Uh, help put on your shoe. Ah, said Dr. P. I had forgotten the shoe. 
Then under his breath he muttered as though baffled, The shoe. The shoe. Hmm. Finally his gaze settled on his foot, and he said, uh, This is my shoe, yes? Sachs was startled by this confusion and told Dr. P. he was pointing at his foot, and then said, There is your shoe. Ah! <laughs> I thought that was my foot. For a moment, Sachs thought Dr. P. was joking, but he wasn't. He had confused his foot for his shoe and his shoe for his foot. What was going on here? Sachs then showed Dr. P. the cover of a National Geographic magazine that featured an unbroken expanse of the Sahara Desert. What do you see here? he asked. Dr. P. looked not at the picture of the desert, but sort of into the air behind it, and said, mm, I see a river and a little guest house with its terrace underwater, people dining out on the terrace. I see colored parasols here and there. As Sachs comments, Dr. P. was confabulating. In the absence of any features in the actual picture, Dr. P. imagined a river scene. It was at this point that Dr. P. decided that the interview must be over, and, looking for his hat, grabbed hold of the top of his wife's head, tried to lift it off, and put it on his own head. He mistook his wife for his hat. His wife reacted as though she had become quite used to this kind of bizarre behavior. What was going on in Dr. P.'s brain? Well, he was suffering from a right hemisphere dysfunction. His left hemisphere had taken control of his mind. The left hemisphere has been dubbed the interpreter by Michael Gazzaniga, who, as we said, did some of the early split-brain research. Gazzaniga discovered that the left hemisphere hates being confused or unsure about what is going on and will never own up to its confusion. The left hemisphere, according to the left hemisphere, is never wrong and never without an answer. So when the left hemisphere is working with limited or incomplete information, which is most of the time, actually, it guesses prevaricates, rationalizes, confabulates, and generally invents something to supply a plausible explanation. Dr. P., for some reason, was unable to understand the picture of the desert on the cover of the National Geographic magazine, but rather than admit his deficit, he constructed a fantasy river scene, complete with people with parasols, dining on a terrace. And he believed himself— Dr. P. believed what his left hemisphere was telling him. In essence, Gazzaniga says that the left hemisphere is a pathological liar, a bullshitter. And Gazzaniga goes on to say that the left hemisphere's capacity for confabulation, quote, is the most stunning result from split-brain research, end quote. The fact that the left hemisphere is prone to BS is one of the most practical lessons we can draw from McGilchrist's hemisphere hypothesis that we're using as the basis for this podcast series. 
much of our mental muddle derives from paying too much attention to the nonsense that is produced by our left hemispheres. We hear the bullshit and believe it to be true. The voice of the left hemisphere in our heads sounds so confident and authoritative that we accept whatever it is saying without question. So the first step in unmuddling ourselves, therefore, is to recognize when the left hemisphere has taken over our mind. Whenever our mind is filled with an inner monologue, we can be pretty sure it's the left hemisphere, since it's the one with language. Then the second step is to recognize that much of what we are hearing is BS, and we should probably ignore it. The third step, then, is learning how to respond sensibly to the left hemisphere monologue, rather than to simply react and take it as, oh, the word of God or the voice of our true self or some such thing. At very least, we need to question what the left hemisphere is telling us. Ian McGilchrist's fear that left hemisphere modes dominate not just our individual minds, but our entire culture, is given credence when we consider that some of our major political leaders are known to be pathological liars, and we have come to accept lying as the normal state of affairs. What's perhaps even more disturbing is that supporters of these pathological liars don't seem to care. Leaders and supporters alike are happy to exist in a fantasy world in which comfortable lies are preferable to inconvenient truths. Well, that is the world of the left hemisphere, when left to its own devices. Kazaniga points out that the right hemisphere feels no need to bullshit its way through life. The right hemisphere is totally truthful and aware of its shortcomings, and more aware of the shortcomings of the left hemisphere than is the left hemisphere itself. The right hemisphere is tolerant of ambiguity, and can accept that what is true in one context may be false in another. So when the left hemisphere dominates and silences the right hemisphere, we get a double whammy of muddle. Crazy ideas from the left hemisphere that go uncorrected by the right hemisphere. This is another practical gem of information. To unmuddle our minds, we not only need to get the monologues of the left hemisphere under control, we also need to find every opportunity to pull ourselves back towards reality, back into the right hemisphere. We need the right hemisphere to be in charge so that it can control the left hemisphere. Remember McGilchrist's story, the right hemisphere is the master and the left hemisphere the emissary, the servant. And when the emissary takes control, everything begins to fall apart. The left hemisphere is a great servant, but it's a lousy master. In one of his lectures, Alan Watts made the clever observation that to come to our senses, we need to go out of our minds. Or said the opposite way around, we need to lose our mind to come to our senses. Watts, through his study of Eastern psychology, of Buddhism, Taoism, Zen, recognized that to get unmuddled, to come to our senses, we need to silence the mental machinations of our mind. He may not have known it at the time, but these mental machinations are the product specifically of our left hemisphere. We need to quiet the monkey mind of the left hemisphere and connect more intimately 
and mindfully, with direct experience, the sensory, tactile, and embodied experience of the right hemisphere. This rebalancing of the two hemispheres puts us on the path towards peace and equanimity. We will continue our examination of left hemisphere modes of attention and the story of the man who mistook his wife for his hat in the next episode. I hope you'll tune in. If you want to learn more about MindRamp, please visit our website at www.mindramp.org. To learn more about the coaching, presentations, and trainings we offer, go to the programs page. And you can access all of our podcasts from our resources page. Thanks for listening. Thanks for working to keep your brain healthy and your mind sharp. Live long and live well.